0: Right. A lot of you guys know, like, I've spent, spent some time in Israel. I talk about it a lot. I lived there in college. Uh, now I lead trips for Grace Church. So once you're not in J-High anymore and off in high school, like, you should come to Israel with me. Because I take high school students every single summer. And uh, I love telling stories about my time in Israel because it impacted me so deeply. Uh, so here's a story about one of the times I almost died. Oh, I know. Okay. No, it's actually a different story than I told in small group. I know. Crazy. Yeah, different story. Okay. So in the northern part of Israel is a territory called the Golan Heights. And the Golan Heights have been a disputed Territory. At some points in history, it's belonged to Syria. At other times in history, it has belonged to Israel. They constantly fight over this kind of hilly, mountainous, upper region of the country. Right now, I think it, it belongs to Israel legally. But tons and tons of battles have been fought up there. I'm talking like machine guns and tanks. And so while I was studying abroad during college, my friends and I, we we took a field trip to the northern part of Israel, and we went to go see some of the history up in the Golan Heights. I mean, we were going to go see some cool, like, battle sites and things like that. There's also some cool biblical history from up there. And uh, uh, we took this field trip, and, and my friends and I, we loved to explore. And we heard that, like, kind of in this field, there was the ruins of, like, this old crusader-era church And it's, like, not a tourist site, so there's no, like, visitor center or sign. There's just some, like, rubble and ruins. And we were like, we got to go find this place. And so uh, we went on a little journey. uh, B-Route, let me see those pictures, the first ones. Yeah, okay. So we jumped a fence, and we walked past some cows. Then we had to navigate this field of cacti. I know, right? Like, literally, look how tall those things are. That's my friend Maddie and Benji uh, and Matthew. Um, and then through the cacti, we get into this field of, like, yellow flowers. And and in this field, we found we found these ruins, and we went and explored, and we, cl- climbed, like, climbed around and, you know, kind of went in some tunnels. It was so, so fun. And once we were all done, we decided to kind of, like, make, make our way back. And we took a slightly different route back because sort of we wanted to avoid the cacti this time. And, and so we take this other route back, and we come to a different fence. It wasn't the fence we jumped over initially. It was a different fence. And uh, and right before we hopped the fence, we noticed a yellow sign. Danger mines. We froze. A landmine is a bomb that gets buried underground. And you don't even know that they're there, usually, until you step on it. When you step on a landmine, it explodes. And when we saw this sign, we didn't know, does it mean that there are landmines on the other side of this fence? Or does it mean that there are landmines where we just came from? And so we like fell silent and we turned around and very carefully, we retraced our steps back to the ruins and then went back the, like, the way we came initially through the cacti and like sweating the whole time. Nobody died. Praise God. We made it back. Yeah. Whew. Why do I start there? Why do I start with a story, I think it's because, I think it's because you, I think it is because you are walking through a field of landmines right now, and you don't even know it yet. Maybe maybe you've never seen the sign that says danger mines or maybe you blew right past it and kept on going. Tonight the field of landmines that I think that you are walking through is called pride. And the only way to walk through it safely is with humility. We're in a series called How to Win at middle school, I want you to wake up every single day and win, win at what you're doing, win in your friendships, win in the relationships within your family, win, yes, in sports, win, yes, in school. But, but I want you to feel like every single day you are winning for Jesus. And I'm going to tell you right now, you cannot win at middle school without humility. So the message tonight is called Winning in Humility. Uh, There's a different title maybe that you could use. I think you could also call it A Tale of Two Kings. A Tale of Two Kings. And we got some work to do in the text. And before we get there, I want to give you kind of my big idea for tonight. So if you're a note taker, write it down. Winning in humility means navigating the pride landmines. Winning in humility means navigating the pride landmines. We're going to look at two whole chapters of God's Word tonight. we got a lot of work to do. Okay, Daniel chapter 4 and 5. So, Bible's open. Go ahead and get there. I'm going to do a little bit of a recap, summary, kind of where we have been thus far. So, if you're just joining us now. You've missed the first two weeks of this series. No worries. Catch up on YouTube. Israel, God's people, were taken into exile by the Babylonian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar, he deported all these people, brought them to his country. Remember, an exile is someone who is forcibly taken from their home. They got to go live somewhere else. And we know that Daniel... Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They're exiles from Israel now living in Babylon. In chapter one, King Nebuchadnezzar, he put Daniel and his friends through that royal palace training program so they could work in his palace. But through that whole process, they stayed loyal to God. And then in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about this statue and Daniel is able to interpret that dream, tell him what it meant. Daniel's power and influence within the country grows. And then in chapter 3, like we heard last week from Ryan, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put in a situation where their options are worship this idol or die. And they choose to stay loyal to God. And their witness, their witness causes other people, including King Nebuchadnezzar, to praise God. But when we get to chapter four, some things have changed. And this is actually the hard part about reading your Bible is the Bible actually doesn't even tell you that things changed pretty dramatically between chapters three and four. Chapter four is all about Nebuchadnezzar, but it's a different Nebuchadnezzar from chapters one through three. And you would never know You actually have to learn from studying history. And so what happened was Nebuchadnezzar II, who took Daniel and his friends from Israel, brought them to Babylon, gets assassinated. And a new king replaces him. And in order to try and like convince everybody that he's the rightful king of Babylon, he takes Nebuchadnezzar's name, starts calling himself Nebuchadnezzar III. He's the new Nebuchadnezzar. And so chapters four and five are all about this new Nebuchadnezzar and his son, Belshazzar. So, are we ready? A Tale of Two Kings, Daniel 4 and 5. We're going to see how pride becomes a field of landmines and how humility helps us navigate it, okay? Buckle up. Here's what happens. New Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Shocker, I know. This book is filled with dudes having dreams and Daniel having to come in and interpret. So, in this dream, New Nebuchadnezzar, he sees a massive tree. In the center of the world, it's like branches reach like the top of the sky. It's bearing all kinds of fruit. All the animals are like living underneath this tree and the birds are nesting in this tree. And then an angel shows up and says, cut down the tree, leave nothing but the stump remaining. And then the angel says, that tree that tree is gonna be forced to go live in the wilderness like an animal. That tree is gonna to, gonna to eat grass, that tree is gonna get rained on. That tree is going to be subhuman until it learns until it learns that God is really in control. So Nebuchadnezzar, he calls all of his magicians and wise men and they they try to explain to him what this dream means, but none of them can. And so finally, Finally, he goes and calls Daniel because he's heard now that Daniel can interpret dreams. And so Daniel comes and tells him what this is all about. Nebuchadnezzar is the giant tree. And yes, he has been prosperous, but he has been prideful and arrogant. And he's going to be cut down. And he's going to live like an animal for seven years until he humbles himself and learns that it's really God in control. So let's pick up Daniel chapter 4 in verse 28. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later. So Daniel gives him the dream interpretation. Then a year later, He's taken a walk on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And as he looks out across the city, he says, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as a royal residence to display my majestic splendor. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven. "O oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you you no longer rule this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the most high rules over all the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society and he did eat grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven he lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws after this time had passed i Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven my sanity returned and i praised and worshiped the most high and honored the one who lives forever his rule is everlasting his kingdom is eternal. That's chapter four. And then it switches in chapter five to Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. And we're going to see a little bit different response from Belshazzar. So many years later, Belshazzar, he's now throwing this party for a thousand people. And they're eating and they're drinking. And so he tells his servants, hey, Remember those people, Israel, that we brought into exile? Remember those people where we took over their city, we destroyed that temple that their God lived in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go get all of their gold and silver cups from that temple and bring them out and we're going to party and we're going to use these cups to drink our wine. And as they're partying, as they're drinking, as they're mocking God, a hand appears in the courtroom And starts writing a message on the wall. And Belshazzar is like freaked out. Like a hand just appeared and started writing. And and so he calls all of his magicians and calls all of his wise men. And none of them can figure out what this message on the wall is trying to say. And then Belshazzar's mom comes and is like, hey, like your dad went to this guy named Daniel. And he was able to tell him stuff. Maybe call him. So Belshazzar, he, he brings Daniel in and he's like, Daniel, I'll give you tons of gold and I'll give you tons of gifts and I'll make you like the third most powerful dude in all of Babylon if you can tell me what this means. So let's pick up in verse 17 of chapter 5. Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts or give them to somebody else, but I'll tell you what the writing means. Your majesty The most high God gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill. He spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor, and he disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne, and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society, he was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world, and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You're his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all of this. Yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. And you and your nobles and your wives have been drinking wine from them and praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that don't see, that don't hear, that don't know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. And he goes on to explain that the message written on the wall meant that Belshazzar was going to be killed. His kingdom stripped. The Babylonian Empire crumbled. And later that very night, Darius, the king of the Persian Empire, snuck soldiers into Belshazzar's palace, killed Belshazzar and the Babylonian Empire was replaced with the Persians. All because Belshazzar was prideful and arrogant and mocked God and would not humble himself before God. That's two whole chapters of the Bible. Two different kings, both prideful but with different responses when God tried to check them on that pride. I want you to win at middle school. I want you to navigate those pride landmines. So let's talk about this minefield. This minefield of pride. And I want to talk about the sweeper, the thing that will help you navigate that minefield. So note takers, my first point tonight is this, the minefield, the minefield. C.S. Lewis says that there is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. Pride is sneaky. It hides. We're actually not even good at knowing when we're in danger. C.S. Lewis also calls it the great sin, like the, the sin from which every other sin comes from. Pride is a minefield with explosions that like reverberate. And when I say pride, like, what I don't mean is, like, when you do a good job and someone notices and, like, you feel good. I also don't mean, like, when you say, like, oh, I'm really proud of you. Like, my brother is in the military, and so, like, I tell him, Joey, like, I'm so proud of you. Like, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about when I say pride. When I say pride, like, what I mean is an excessively high opinion, like, of yourself and your own importance. That's what pride is. When you begin to have this inflated view of self, you actually forget God. You become opposed to God. You stop thinking that God is in control, and you start thinking, actually, I'm in control. That's what happened to new Nebuchadnezzar. That's why he has this dream, is, is he gets this warning about how his pride is out of control, and and he sees, he basically sees the sign that says, danger, minds. And he knows, like, time to backtrack, but he doesn't do it. He sees the warning, and he plows right on through. And a year later, as he's walking on the roof of his palace, he looks down over this city, the capital of Babylon, with its hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he says, look at this great city. I built this. I built this to display my glory. What? Oh, no, you didn't. Like, dude, you didn't build this city. You actually just killed the king who was here before you and took his city and his name. You built none of this. He's forgotten everyone who came before him, but more importantly, he's forgotten that there is somebody above him. He's forgotten that it's God who allows kings to rule their puny little kingdoms. So God humbles him. Takes away his sanity. Makes him live like an animal for seven years to teach him. But ultimately, ultimately he looks up. Ultimately he remembers, oh yeah, there is a God. He begins to understand his place in comparison to God. This is vital for you if you're going to win at middle school. because I think that we do the same thing. That's like why this is a minefield. That's why we have to step with caution. Because we see what happens when we don't. Like, Belshazzar is like this counter example. Nebuchadnezzar gets the warning sign, God humbles him, and then he realizes. Belshazzar gets zero warning signs because he was mocking god and we see what happens to him his pride literally kills him so there's a few ways that someone might navigate a minefield you actually take a tank and kind of plow right through it and essentially you blow up all the mines and then you know it's safe that's one way um you can use dogs you can train dogs to sniff out mines but one of the most effective and safe ways is you use a mine sweeper looks like a big um, metal detector. And you kind of go back and forth and you find where the mines are and you mark them and then you step around them. I want to tell you sort of what the minesweeper for pride is. It's humility. If you want to navigate this minefield, you need humility. That's my second point tonight. The minesweeper. See, humility is... It's the place of entire dependence on God. It's the original and, and only true relation of the creature to its God. Humility is the anti-pride. Just like pride is the great sin from which every other sin kind of flows from, humility, humility is like the root of looking like Jesus. All of it flows. From humility. So if you want to avoid pride, you must be humble. You must be like Jesus. Look what it says in Philippians chapter 2. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't think equality with God was something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus, God himself, humbled himself to become a human like you and me. Jesus, the king of the universe, humbled himself to die on a cross for you And for me, Jesus' humility is literally our salvation. We're saved because he was humble. So if you want to start to cultivate humility in your life, you're going to put yourself in the correct relationship to God. You're basically gonna say, You're God, I'm not. You're basically have to, gonna have to say, like, like, you know best, and I do not. You're gonna have to say, I will trust you, even if it doesn't make sense to me. That's the posture. That's the position to be in. Three different times in the scriptures it says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace. To the humble, Humility puts God on top in your life. So, what can you do? How can this apply to your life right now as a middle schooler sitting here in 2024? I think for starters, if you sense that you're like trying to do life without God, stop. These chapters in Daniel, this is your danger mind's sign. Here's here's a question you can ask yourself. Am I going to God first? Or do I only go to God as a last resort when I am desperate? If your answer is, I only go to God as a last resort, then I think an application for you could be to to start every single day in prayer and ask God, like, God, what do you want for me? And then go open up your Bible and see if he has anything that he wants to say to you. Hearing the voice of the Lord takes time, but the more practice you get, the clearer his voice becomes. Here's another question you might be able to ask yourself. Am I constantly competing with everybody around me in every category of my life, that might be a sign that you're pretty prideful, that you're kind of walking through that pride minefield, not being too careful. C.S. Lewis also said that pride doesn't take any pleasure in having something. It likes having more of something than somebody else pride is sort of naturally competitive if you're constantly trying to just one up every single person around you instead what if you tried to celebrate people who are doing awesome stuff and like not like half-heartedly do it but really mean it like really actually celebrate other people's success if you want to start cultivating humility in your life, if you really want to be humble, the first step is to realize that you are prideful. Step two is then to just stop thinking so much about yourself. Maybe you've heard it said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. I think think that's how like new Nebuchadnezzar gained humility right when he says like i looked up to heaven my sanity returned and i praised and i worshiped god he went from looking down at this city that he didn't really build thinking he had done it all to looking up and realizing his rightful place was below god so if you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, this is a lot. I don't know, maybe you're in here thinking like, I'm, I'm too sinful. I'm too far gone in this pride minefield. Maybe you've seen some of these bombs kind of blow up in your face already. Maybe you're not even sure how you could turn it around at this point and start cultivating humility. Let me just remind you, let me remind you of the gospel. Let me remind you of the good news of the kingdom of God. I'm going to do it by reading one more C.S. Lewis quote. If you listen to me preach, you're going to hear lots of C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. I got one more C.S. Lewis quote. This one's from a book that maybe some of you have read. It's at least a series you've heard of. It's from the Chronicles of Narnia. And... Uh, This book is actually potentially my favorite, probably second favorite in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's called A Horse and His Boy. And uh, this book is, it it takes place after the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe while Edmund and Susan and Peter and Lucy are are the kings and the queens of Narnia. And it tells the story about a, a horse, a talking horse named Bree and a boy named Shasta and how Bree and Shasta actually save Narnia from an invasion and the scene that I want to read is right at the end of the book and it's it's when Bree meets Aslan face to face and Bree this talking horse who has been very very prideful gets humbled but in the humbling of Bree I believe that there is good news for you He lifted his head and spoke in a louder voice. Now, Bree, you poor, proud, frightened horse, draw near. Nearer still, my son, do not dare not to dare. Touch me, smell me, here are my paws, here's my tail, these are my whiskers, I am a true beast. Aslan, said Bree in a shaken voice. I'm afraid I must have been rather a fool. Happy is the horse who knows that while he is still young. Do not dare not to dare. Whether you are just becoming aware of your pride or whether you know that you have been drowning in it, Maybe your sin struggle is something else and you know it's jealousy or it's lust. Maybe it's anger. Maybe you steal things. Maybe you're a compulsive liar. Whatever that thing is that you know has been keeping you from Jesus, do not dare not to dare. Draw near to Jesus. Whatever your thing is, Jesus wants you to come close to him. I think so often our sin tries to push us away from Jesus, tries to convince us that that we need to run the other direction. But that's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel for you is that whatever it is that you are struggling with, that sin keeping you from Jesus, he wants you to come close because he loves you. He died for that sin. He died for you. He died so that he could forgive you. He could set you on a new path. That that sin would no longer need to define who you are. That's the good news of the gospel in Daniel 4 and 5. There is a new way of living, and it's the way of Jesus. So if you're in here and you're like, man, I need to know about this new way of living. I need to know what it's like to follow Jesus. I would love to have a conversation like that with you. I know Ryan would love to have a conversation like that. I know Grace would love to have a conversation like that. Elliot, Adam, Christy, like any of our volunteers, small group leaders, Best Night Experience team, like we are here so that maybe if you have questions and you want to talk through some stuff, like, you'd come find us. So before you leave tonight, like don't leave if you want to have that conversation, stay, have it before you go.